How's everybody feeling? Good. We prayed first service uh, for the message, second service, so I trust those are still in effect. And we're just going to jump right in, okay? Um, so we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at a lot of scripture this morning. Um, I felt like I kind of fumbled around first service, so I think, you know, second service make more sense, be better. Ephesians 4 verse 17 Ephesians 4.17, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind or in the futility of their thinking. So the problem is acting on what you think when your thoughts are futile. It's not the actions, it's the thinking. That's where Paul identifies the problem. Then he says, having their understanding darkened, look at this part, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So they're alienated from the life of God because they're walking according to darkened understanding and futile thinking. Yes? Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him... And have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So what are you to be taught by Jesus? He tells you in the next sentence. That you put off concerning your former conduct, which is the result of the futility of your thinking. Right? You put off the former conduct, which is the result of your previous thinking, darkened understanding. Put off your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Or the old man is the old man who's got futile thinking who's got a darkened heart, and who is alienated from the life of God. So the old man is the man alienated from the life of God. Got it? (laughs) Okay. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. Then come with me to Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. In an effort to simplify what I'm saying, I'll probably shorten it. (laughs) In an effort to simplify what I'm saying, I'll probably shorten it. (laughs) I'm thinking out loud. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, this is probably the only passage that you can quote. To everything, or you know that you know the passage, maybe you didn't know it was in Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And then he goes through polarities or opposites. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear down and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. 
He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work of God from beginning to end. All right. Then we'll look at a passage in John here in a minute. But in Ephesians, Paul clearly tells us, your problem is, (laughs) uh, in the futility of your thinking, the darkness of your understanding, the Gentiles' problem is the futility of their thinking, the darkness of their understanding, and all of that causes them to be alienated from the life of God or separated from the life of God, right? Then he says, what Jesus teaches you is to put off the old man, be renewed in your mind, and put on the new man, right? Now, the word for old there in the Greek can mean that which belongs to time. So... Your self-concept, which belongs to time, you're supposed to put off. (laughs) Okay, so now let's come to Ecclesiastes. So in Ecclesiastes, he says, everything under heaven is bound by time. Every purpose under heaven is governed by time. It's ruled by time. And when you start experiencing time you experience polarity. You understand what I mean by polarity? You experience opposites. So he goes through all these different things that are bound by time and then kind of asks the question, what profit does the person who's laboring have? So this is how most people experience life. They're just kind of laboring along through time and time is happening. (laughs) We say life happens, we say (laughs) whatever, right? And as life is happening, you're you're experiencing polarities and you're kind of being tossed back and forth by them, right? Now, our problem is we develop our self-concept based on what happens to us in time, which means then that our idea or our thinking about who we are is time-bound, That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about the futility of your thinking. Because all of that is taking place under heaven. Under implies a fall. So when Adam's in the garden, is he time bound? Or is he eternal? He's eternal, right? And... When he eats, he falls, and, and so Einstein would tell us that time and space are inseparable. It's almost like time is the sort of the fourth dimension, if you will, of space, right? So when Adam falls, the first thing he experiences is space. Because he hears the voice of God. Well, they see that they're naked. They see that they're separate from each other. And they cover themselves, right? Then he hears God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, where was he? Where was Adam that he could hear God in the garden? You see how all of a sudden now perceptually space is a factor. So the reality is, is that Eden and Adam is a type of existing in eternity. And what happens in the fall is you come under heaven... (laughs) into time and space, or he's kicked out of the garden. He's alienated from the garden. 
He's alienated from the presence of God. See it? So the old man is that man or that person in Adam who's fallen into time or space, fallen into a world of polarity, good and evil. Remember, he ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you're going to evaluate things based on good and evil, there is of necessity polarity. But here's our problem. When you're reading this, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap. If you look at it through a good-bad frame, you can look at there are good times and there are bad times. Yes? But here's our problem. There's people who are... It says there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's people who are living who want to die. And there's people who are dying who want to live. (laughs) There are people who are living that say it's bad that I'm living and I'd be better off dead. There's people who are dying, desperately trying to cling to their life, saying, I'll do anything, take any kind of medicine, do whatever I have to do to try to live. So, there's people who are planting who'd rather be reaping. I suppose there's people who are reaping who'd rather be planting. There's people who hate the person that they used to love and love someone that they knew and then they leave the person that they hate and they go to the person that they love and then they end up hating the person that they love. <laughs> I mean, how long have you been on this planet? Right? So there's just this, this continual sort of discontentment and out of that then we build a self-construct or a self-concept about who we are. Just try this experiment this week. Try to separate your thinking from time. Just don't get don't get all caught up in the, what you're thinking. Notice the content of what you're thinking and how much of that is preoccupied with the past or the future. How much can you bring your awareness into the present moment and keep it there before you start thinking about something that happened before or anticipating something that you think is going to happen? Because the reality is that mind and time are locked together. So that when you walk in your mind, you're walking a time-bound life. Notice Paul did not identify any of the content of the thinking. He identifies behaviors, talks about greed, talks about lust, talks about all that stuff. But he says the problem's in your thinking, but he doesn't identify any of the content. Because really the content is not the issue. (laughs) The issue is whatever your mind is doing, it has to do it in time and space. Right? So that you end up identifying with the temporal. Here's what I mean by that. Try to make a statement about yourself that has nothing to do with your past or your future. (laughs) Try to make a statement about who you are that you did not get from your personal history or about something that's time-bound. So that when you're locked into that consciousness, you're alienated from eternity. But yet, 
Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity in their hearts. Inside of you, right? Make sense? So again, to follow the flow of Ecclesiastes, he says there's all this stuff happening in life. And I'm watching the sons of men who are laboring through all these different times and seasons. And what is the thing that they're to be occupied with? The fact that God put eternity in their hearts and they do not know. There's an ancient Christian writing called The Cloud of Unknowing. And it's taken from the ascent of Moses. When Moses ascends into the cloud... And it talks about how as you journey closer to God, the pathway there is not a pathway of knowledge, it's a pathway of not knowing. Yeah, I didn't either until I just said it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Kevin said I didn't know that. Think about it. He's put eternity in their hearts, but they do not know. So it's what we think we know that's the problem because everything about knowing is locked into time and space. But here's the thing. Nothing in time and space is stagnant. Whatever happened yesterday is not happening right now. Which means it's gone. (laughs) But we identify with it. We create a self-construct out of it. So that if we, so we can do it one of two different ways. We can, we can go through a difficult season or a difficult time and we can live with regret. We can live with guilt. We can live with shame. We can live with, um, see anything that you think you know against yourself is in the past. I'm going to say that again. Any knowledge that you have that is against yourself is in the past. If it's in the past, it does not have any real existence. If it's in the past, it has no real existence. It's a true fact that it may have happened, but to identify yourself with it is to stay stuck in an illusion because it does no longer exist. (laughs) You could say this, that our problem as humanity is, is that we are stuck in the delusion of the past because the past no longer exists, but we take our identity from it. So we're caught in the delusion of the past or the darkness of the past. The sun has set on the past. And we're stuck in the darkness of it in our hearts or the fantasy of the future. Because we really don't know what's going to be. So we make it up in our mind. But it's not here yet. That's why worry is so damaging. Because when you worry, you have to experience something twice. If it happens. And, And maybe more than twice, depending on how much you worry about it. So you're actually experiencing it. You know this, right? I mean, neuroscientists have told us this. This is where the whole, I mean, like anybody that was involved in sports at all knows that you could sit there in your mind. If you were a basketball player and practice free throws in your I mean, they've done studies where they've had people practice free throws, making free throws in their mind. And they've had people actually practicing free throws. And they do it for like a month. And they spend the same amount of time doing it in their mind as they do on the court. And what they discovered was there wasn't much discrepancy between how well the two performed. So that what they'll say is, if it's happening in your mind, your mind doesn't really know the difference between what happened in reality and what happened in your mind. So if you're worrying, you're upset. 
right? Because you're afraid, you're afraid it's going to happen and then you'll really be upset. But the problem is you're upsetting yourself by worrying. So if it does happen, you're experiencing it before you have to experience it. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the futility of the Gentile way. So that really what Ecclesiastes is inviting us to do, what Paul is inviting us to do, is to view ourselves outside of time and space as someone who is eternal. So that the new man is completely constructed independently of time and space. And that is the renewal that has to take place in your mind. So therefore, it's a, it's a cloud of unknowing. Because to escape the... F- <laughs> Alright, let's, let's do it this way. Um, so one of the things that just radically changed my thinking about the way I read the Bible was getting outside of what, what's known as the Latin paradigm. Uh, the Roman Catholic way of thinking. And realizing that Roman Catholicism was not the only expression of Christianity. It was just the most empire-ish expression. Does that make sense? It predominated politically. So something happened to me probably about two years ago now was I got introduced to Celtic, ancient Celtic Christianity. And so here's what happened. Um, Rome... Ties himself to Peter, right? Oh, come on, Catholics. I mean, okay. Ha- have you ever seen a movie, an old movie or something, where somebody dies and they go to heaven and who do they meet at the pearly gates? Why do they meet St. Peter? Does anybody know? Because Jesus told St. Peter that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So if Peter has the keys, then to get into the kingdom, you have to get through St. Peter. And so the Catholic Church says that they trace their lineage back to Peter, right? Yeah? Now, there was an ex- thank you. There was an expression of Christianity that migrated into the Gaelic world or into, um, into Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, uh, and England. And they traced their lineage back to the Apostle John, not back to Peter. And so their thinking developed totally differently and was more holistic in terms of life and less segmented in terms of church. See, because Latin Christianity traces itself back to St. Peter, then everything that was a saving event happened through the church. You had to be baptized, you had to receive communion, you had to have your sins forgiven, the whole shebang, because it's happening through the church. John never uses the word church at all in any of his writings, never. He talks about brethren, he talks about fellowship, he talks about brothers and sisters, he talks about a family, he talks about a community, he never uses the term ecclesia, or the Greek word for church, right? And so for them, it was more holistic. And what I mean by that was God was involved in every area of life, not segmented off into the church. So they read the Bible very, very differently. The way they would read the story of Adam and Eve in the fall is they would say the Garden of Eden was not a physical place. The Garden of Eden was the place where God had put eternity in their hearts. 
And that to commune with God is to walk with Him in the garden. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The Garden of Eden was not a place in time and space. Garden, The Garden of Eden was the reality of who you are or the depth of your being or the essence of who you are or the place inside your heart where you escape time and space. You escape that time-bound life. You step into eternity. You step into eternal life. And there you find the voice in the presence of God. There you lose all sense of polarity and you discover once again that all things are good and created by God. So when Ad, so the exile is this. They eat at the tree of what? The tree of knowledge. What does it have to do with? Thinking. So that the exile from the garden to the place where you have to labor and toil by the sweat of your... Why not the sweat of your armpits? Why not the sweat of your feet or the sweat of your hands? Why the sweat of your brow? Because what the author is trying to show you is that the true exile is from the place of eternity in your heart where you can walk with God into the place of your mind where you're bound by time and space and you walk by the futility of your mind or you try to make life work by the sweat of your brow. Because you're thinking most of it takes place in the frontal lobe. Back here takes care of all your vital functions. Right here is where all your thinking happens. So you see, alienated from the heart into the head. And then Cain moves even further away. And goes to a place called Nod. Which is about nodding. Which means he's alienated even further from his heart into his head. But also, it's a fall from heaven to that which is under heaven. So that when I'm operating out of my time and space self, I'm operating from my fallen self. Not living out of my true home. If you can stop your mind, you will lose all sense of time. You, you have to have experienced that at some point. You, you have to have had just where you just get lost in an experience and you come out of it and maybe it was 20 minutes and it felt like two hours or maybe it felt like 20 minutes and you find yourself three hours later. You have to experience something like that sometime in your life. Right? Make sense? Now... This is where we're going to depart a little bit from the ordinary, and this is where I struggled first service, so let's see if I can do a better job. Come with me to John chapter 1. All right, now, he's going back out. I don't want to say he's going back before time. I want to say that John begins his writing outside of time. In the beginning is as much a location as it is a frame of reference for time. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. That's all there was. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now when he's talking about the Word, he's talking about God's own self-reflection. 
The word is God's reflection of who he is. So you could say it this way. The son steps out of the father so the father can know himself through the son and the son can know himself through the father. They're, they're reflecting on each other. But because we believe in a trinity, that which it's not really separate, it's one. Are you tracking? So the word is God's self-reflection about himself. So therefore, if you understand it that way, in the beginning was God's self-reflection upon himself. And that self-reflection was with God and that self-reflection was God. Make sense? All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So there is no life apart from the source of life, which is God. So, so in other words, he says, the word is the self-reflection and the source of all things. Yes? yes? All right. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now watch this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness. He came for a purpose. He came for a witness. To bear witness to the light that all through him might believe, through his witness might believe, that all through him, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every person coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Two births. Two identities. That which is born under heaven, by the flesh, by the will of man, and that which was born not of that. Unknowing. That which knows what they were not. All right. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the word for among, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is tricky in the Greek because it can mean among, but it can also mean within. So the word became flesh and dwelt within us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is where I get stuck trying to explain this part. Now, who, let's think for a minute. Outside of John's gospel, who is John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? In other gospels, Jesus makes statements about John the Baptist. In Matthew's gospel, he says this. He says, of everyone born of all the history of time, there's never been one greater than John the Baptist. Now think about how shocking a statement that is to Jews who know their Bible. Greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha. There's never been anyone born who was greater than John the Baptist. Nevertheless, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. So John the Baptist 
comes to bear witness to Christ. John the Baptist is the forerunner. John the Baptist is the one who goes in the wilderness preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But John the Baptist is also the last prophet under the old age and under the old covenant. He represents the summation of everything that God had done previously. And he was the greatest one born by the will of the flesh. You see it? And he came as a witness. That was the reason he came. As a witness to testify to the light, right? Now, here's what's interesting. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And we're reading the gospel of John. Which is never attributed to John the Baptist. It's attributed to John the Apostle. Right? Okay, here's my question. From John's perspective, when when John the Baptist, okay, from John the Apostle's perspective, or any perspective, when John the Baptist is bearing witness of the light, what is his witness? How is he doing that? Because here's the other thing about John the Baptist. We know he was Jesus' cousin, but we also know he did not know who Jesus was in his identity as the Son of God until he was baptized in the Jordan. He goes on in John chapter 1 and says that. They ask him, are you the one who is to come? You know, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, no, no. He said, I was told by God, the one upon whom I see the Spirit descend, he is the one who is to come after me, whose, whose shoe I'm not even willing to, or worthy to tie, right? So his revelation of who Jesus was came at Jesus' baptism. And after Jesus' baptism, John's ministry's end. Over. I must decrease, you must increase, he says. In other words, I fulfilled my purpose when I baptized Jesus. But he didn't even know who Jesus was. So how did he testify to the light? How did he bear witness to the light? If once he sees who the light is, his ministry's done. His purpose for existing is over. How's that work? See, I, these are the questions that keep me up at night. Part of our problem, here's, here's a real part of our problem in the West. We're taught to read everything in the Bible literally and historically like it is just a journalistic testimony of what happened. And Jewish people today, Jewish people in the second temple in the first century would say that is the most childish way to read the scriptures. They do not say that it's invalid. They don't say, they, they don't, they don't say don't read it literally or historically. They're just saying if you're locked into only reading it that way, you remain a child. See, our problem is we try to make the Bible something it's not. Paul said this about Scripture. He said, all Scripture is what? Inspired by God. Inspired. It has has the inspiration of God in it. And is profitable. And he goes on and says, for instruction in righteousness and all this stuff, that the person of God may be fully equipped and ready for every good work, right? But there's a difference between inspired and 100% totally accurate. If you don't believe me, I got an Easter assignment for you, all right? Before Easter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out a piece of paper. I want you to go through Matthew's account of the resurrection, and I want you to write out the sequence of events in time and space. Who gets there first? Who gets there second? What happens when they're at the tomb? Write it all out. Then I want you to go to Mark's gospel, and I want you to do the same thing on a separate piece of paper. 
Then I want you to go to Luke's gospel and do the same thing on a separate piece of paper. Then I want you to go to John's gospel and do the same thing on a separate piece of paper. Then I want you to tell me the story of what really happened. Because in, in, in one account, and I don't have it all in front of me, so forgive me for my mistakes here, but when you go, you'll see what I mean. In one account, it's the women who get there first and the disciples don't know about it yet. In another account, Peter and John outrun the women and they get there first. <laughs> in one account, there's a soldier there. In one account, the soldiers flee. In one account, an earthquake rolls the stone away. In another account, the angel rolls the stone away. In one account, there's a man in white linen. In another account, there's no angels when they go into the, into the tomb. In another account, there's one angel at the head and one angel at the foot. In one account, there's one angel. In one account, there's two angels. You can't reconcile them. I know you can't because Christians have been trying to do it for 2,000 years. <laughs> You're not the first one to read the Bible. <laughs> Why would Scripture do that to us? Why would they do that to us? I think it's there on purpose. I think that's part of the inspiration of God because I think God knew there would be a tendency of us to want to stay immature, to want to stay childlike, and to want everything to just be about a historical event. And if we understand John the Baptist is only testifying to the birth of Jesus, the story of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, we miss the whole point of what John's talking about in John chapter 1. Because what he's trying to do is elevate our consciousness out of time and space. So God deliberately, the most important event of Christianity, the foundation of your faith, is deliberately obscure, is deliberately contradictory so that it messes up your time and space thinking so that you have to think on a different level because the resurrection is about the escape from death which is governed by time and space and the ascension into a place of eternity so he deliberately tells the story in a way that confuses your mind about time and space so that you have to say i don't know I don't know what happened so that I quit locking into the futility of my thinking and I connect with the word that is dwelling within me. So see, John's doing it obscurely. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Historically, that's accurate. But in eternity, it's dwelling within you right now. He is the light that gives light to every man who came into the world. And that light is not governed by time and space because in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. A light that does not come from time and space. A light that does not come from your past or from your future, but something that emerges from the eternity that God put in your heart. Therefore, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So how do we read John? How do we read John? We can read it historically or we can read it like it's talking about us. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Who's the author of the book? In other words, you have to see John the Baptist as part of yourself. And you have to see him as the part of yourself that functions in time and space. And that part of yourself that functions in time and space is not meant to identify it's meant to bear witness
It's It's meant to bear witness to what you are that transcends time and space. So therefore, the first thing John has to know is, I am not the light. I am not my past. I'm not the summation of everything that has happened to me. I'm not the summation of everybody's opinions. I'm not limited by what I think is possible for my future. I am not the light. I am just a witnessing presence passing through time and space. Because just like God had a self-reflection in the Word, you need to have a self-reflection. So he's talking about two different types of self-reflection. He's talking about that self-reflection, which is God beholding God, and that self-reflection, which is a man beholding himself. And that part of you is meant to bear witness to what? The light. Let's do it this way. In the beginning was the... Word, a singularity, one, one thing, right? God's self-reflection of himself. And the word was with God and the word was God. There's distinction because there's self-reflection, but there's union. Because it's the same. And all things were made by him, which means there's one life. In him was life, not lives. There's one life. There is one source. And in him was light, not lights. There is one light. And the word became flesh and dwells within us. In other words, that's what's occupying that space of eternity that God put in your heart. And so John's purpose is to understand whatever he's experienced in time and space, he is not. It is not the light. But he bears witness of the fact that you are, that you also are an expression of the one word, the one life, the one source, and the one light. So that what Paul's talking about when he's talking about renewing the mind, he's talking about escaping the darkness of your understanding that is governed by time and space. Coming back to the place in your heart where there is eternity. And realizing that you're part of the one. That you're an expression of the one. You're an expression of the one life. You're an expression of the one light. And when that happens, your mind is renewed and you put on the new man. Does that make sense to you? So, see, here's what we do. We identify instead of witness. You cannot get through time and space until you have a, until you recognize that there is a part of you that's been given to you by God to be a witnessing presence, and that's it. In other words, when the bad stuff happens to me, I don't identify with it and say, I'm the byproduct of it. See, there's a difference between being the witness of what happens in your life and the byproduct of what happens in your life. And the illusion is, we think we're the byproduct of what happens. I failed at my job, therefore I'm a failure. I messed up over there, therefore I'm a mess. I did really well over there, therefore I'm great and wonderful. All right, we walk through life, we experience polarity, right? Let's come back to Paul. Who was Paul? 
Who was he before he met Christ? He was Saul, right? And and he 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 had a he had a Jekyll and Hyde side, didn't he? We we think about his Hyde side because we think about the fact that he was persecuting Christians. And he tells in some places, he says, I was insolent, I was angry, I was violent, I was going into, breaking into people's houses, I was carrying people off, he was there at the stoning of Stephen, that's, that's bad Paul. But then he also was a Jew, right, circumcised on the eighth day, born in the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he even says in one place, concerning the righteousness that is of the law, I was blameless. So on the one hand, you know he's not identifying himself any longer as a persecutor of the church. But on the other hand, when he goes through that list, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, I kept the law perfectly. In all my peers, I had exceeded them. I was at the top of my game. I was at the top of my ladder. Then he goes on and says, yet all those things that were gained to me, I considered loss that I might gain Christ. So in other words, I'm not identifying with who I was as a persecutor because now I'm preaching the gospel that I once persecuted. And I'm not identifying myself as at the pinnacle of understanding and knowledge as a Pharisee of Pharisees because I counted that as lost that I might gain Christ. In other words, I completely disassociated myself from everything I knew about myself in time and space so that I could identify with myself as part of the one life, the one life, the one word, the one self-reflection of God so that Christ in me, the hope of glory, could be manifested. So therefore, he says, I have learned a secret to be content in all things. I know what it is to be abased or to be poor and have nothing. I know what it is to abound and have abundance. And I found the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, I can witness myself with lack. I can witness myself with abundance. I can witness myself as a persecutor of the church. I can witness myself as having a righteousness that surpasses all of my peers. I witness and observe and testify to all those things, but ultimately I bring my witness back to the light and the life of men. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Can you see it? So that when you stop identifying with things, see, here's what we do. We, we have a bad experience and we think we're the byproduct of the bad experience. You have a choice. You can say, I am that, this because of that. I'm the byproduct of that. Or you can simply say, hmm, that happened. <laughs> you can look at all the good stuff and say, I'm the byproduct of that. Or you can say, huh, that happened. I'm rich man, I'm poor man. No, I've had times of wealth and I've had times of lack, but I'm anchored in my eternal identity and who I am in Christ. I'm observing everything that's going on around me without thinking, without becoming deluded into thinking that I am it. Now here's what we do with the good times. Part of the reason we worry... I mean, you can worry because you got a bad report and you think something bad is going to happen, or you can worry because you're in a good place and you're afraid you're going to lose it. But here's the reality. Everything comes to pass. Everything comes to pass. So a lot of our pain is trying to maintain the good that is going to come to pass. So therefore we can't just be the witness of it and enjoy it. Or we over-identify with the bad so we make ourselves miserable thinking, oh, my life's terrible. And in order to do this, be this witnessing presence, you have to stay out of judgment. 
See, Adam fell by judging good and bad. Well, birth is good, right? Death is bad. But yet, you have abortion and you have suicide. Which means you have people that believe birth is... I mean, it would seem self-evident to some of us that birth is good, right? New life, babies, right? All that comes with it. And death is bad. But yet we live in a culture where there's tons of abortion. So there's tons of people that think birth is bad. And their suicide rate keeps, you know, climbing or whatever. So there's people that think death is good. So we're subjectively judging everything. So in order to enter that place in your heart, you have to completely suspend judgment. Where you just stand back and say, huh, look at that. Wow, that just happened. Function. See, your self-reflection is a witness, not an identity. Your self-reflection is a witness that is meant to testify to the light. You can't testify to the light if you're not reflecting on it, if you're not looking at it, if you're not beholding it. I'll show you two other scriptures and we'll be done. Does this make sense to you? Let me Psalm 73. I turned right to it. What do you know? So this is how we'll... You, Verse 22 says, I was so foolish and ignorant. What did Paul say was the problem? How did we get alienated from the life of God? By the ignorance that is in their hearts, right? So he says, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Anybody ever felt like that? Like a beast before God? Because remember, man was created in the what? In the image of God. The beasts were not, right? So when I feel like I'm a beast, I feel like there's nothing in me that's godly. (laughs) Anybody ever felt like that besides me? (laughs) there's nothing in me that's godly there's nothing in me that's redeemable I am a beast before you and the biggest lie we were ever told or that we ever told in church was that if you sin God breaks fellowship with you sin won't cost you I heard this over and over and over again for years sin will not cost you your relationship with God but sin costs you your fellowship with God but look what David or whoever's writing the psalm look what he says after this I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. Even when I don't know where I'm going, even when I'm confused, even when I'm acting like a beast, you're always there. You're always upholding me. No matter what's going on in time and space, no matter what purposes I'm experiencing under heaven, I always have an eternal hand that is guiding me. I always have His presence with me. Come on, the psalmist said it, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. What he's doing? What's he doing? He's saying, I'm not defined by my enemies, and I'm not defined by my valleys, and I'm not defined by my shadows, and I'm not defined by darkness, and I'm not defined by death and limitation of time. In the midst of all of that that I'm experiencing, even when I feel like I'm a beast before you, there is a hand that is God. Me. Even when I feel like I don't have any means of visible support, I always have invisible support. If God be for us, who can be against us? Jesus said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. God said, I will never leave you. I'm an ever-present help in time of trouble. I will never, 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 ever leave you nor forsake you. Abandonment is an impossibility for you. 
Even if you're not supplicating, even if you're not praying, even if you're not studying, even if you're not, not, even on your worst day, His presence is continually with you. His hand is continually supporting you. The life that you're living is the one life. The breath that you have in your lungs, your heart beating, is because your body is still responding to the one life that is within you. And if that life is in you, then there is light that's there, even if you can't see it. So then he says, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, my flesh and my heart fail. That's John. (laughs) You see it? I mean, the psalmist is taking the position of John. Though I'm like a beast before you, I'm experiencing myself, I'm witnessing to myself like a beast before you, but I'm not a beast. I'm testifying to the light. You're always with me and your hand's guiding me even when I can't see it. You're guiding me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me into glory. See it? Then he says, nothing on earth do I desire more than you. Because if I desire, because desire is my problem. Because in birth I could desire death and in death I could desire birth. I could be one who's living desiring to die or I could be one who's dying, dying desiring to live. It's my desires being all down here that is my problem. And so I cannot cling to anything. I cannot cling to the bad and I cannot cling to the good. I cannot cl- cling to the, the pain and I cannot cling to the pleasure. I witness it all, but ultimately my life transcends and is greater than all of that. Does that make sense? Last passage, I told you we'd look at a lot of scripture, so you don't think I'm nuts. <laughs> you might anyway, but I'm just witnessing it. <laughs> I am not nuts. <laughs> Colossians 3, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. See it? For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now watch this. When Christ, our, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. <laughs> All right. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked and lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the man who belongs to time, since you've put off the old man with his deeds, and you've put on the new man. Now, man, there's an italics, so it's not in the original text. You have put on the new. Everybody hold on to that. Got it? You put on the new. Not the new man, the new. Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in 
all. He's saying the same thing John's saying in John chapter 1. In Christ, there is nothing about time and space that can identify you. There is no male or female, he says in Galatians. There is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Greek. Because all those things are identities that we take to ourselves under heaven. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He wasn't John, that was just his name. (laughs) See it? But in Christ, the one life is in all and that's all there is. It's the one reality. It's the one thing. You see it? Now watch this. He says, seek those things that are above. You, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, you also shall appear with him in glory. What did I tell you the word was? The word in the beginning was the word, the self-reflection that God has about himself. So you have to think about it this way. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, you also appear. The question is, to whom? To whom do you appear? And what I'd like to suggest to you is your own self-reflection. It's not about the second coming when Christ appears and you're transformed and everybody says, oh, the Christians were right and we're wrong and we're all going to burn in hell. At the apocalypse. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying, when you put to death what's already dead, when you put to death what's already dead, you died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, put to death your members that are upon the earth. Because whatever it is, it's already gone anyways. See, if you made a mistake last week, and that mistake is not... You you cannot get stuck in anything in this life unless you get stuck in it mentally. Because it all passes away. That's why we have the saying, this too shall pass. It's a good thing to tell yourself, this too shall pass, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. Why? Because you're reminding yourself not to get stuck in whatever you're going through. You're reminding yourself that when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you're going through it. You're not camping out there. You're reminding yourself when you go through in another place in the Psalms, it says the the valley of weeping. You're not camping out there. You're passing through it. So all Paul's saying is put to death what's already dead or accept reality. Except that none of that stuff exists. When Paul's talking about himself being violent against the church, he's no longer violent against that church. He's not living that life. When he talks about all his accomplishments, he's not stuck in those accomplishments. He said, I counted them lost that I might gain Christ because he's not trying to live out of just his accomplishments. It's a place of total freedom. It's a place of total unconditional self-acceptance. It's a place of total unconditional acceptance about everything that happens in life. Where you're not resisting and you're not fighting, you're witnessing and observing and experiencing, but not identifying. And when you can do that and you can begin to look into who Christ is and begin to find that place in your heart, eventually who Christ is, you begin to also see yourself in Christ.
I want to tell you a Jewish secret, but I don't know if I have time. And I don't want to confuse you. In Ezekiel chapter 1, in Ezekiel chapter 1, just go home and read it. Ezekiel is a priest in exile. A priest in exile has no temple in which to serve. And he was a high priest in exile, and the high priest would go in behind the veil where God's presence was. Behold God and make atonement for the sins of the people. But he is sitting by the river Chebar, and Chebar means that which has been forgotten. And water is always a type of consciousness in Scripture because it's the first mirror. Remember, remember we talked about the macrocosm being the universe and the microcosm being you, and everything that's out there, you have a corresponding thing inside of you? So the Jews looked at water and said, that's the first mirror, that's the macrocosm. Then they said, where's the water in us? Oh, it's our self-reflection. So they start using water and consciousness interchangeably throughout the scriptures. So he's by a river that's flowing from a place he's forgotten about. See, I'm taking you deeper in the scriptures. If you read it just from the level of, oh, it's, it's about a historical events, you get stuck there. But if you understand, key bar is, it's a code to help you unlock something about yourself. You've forgotten who you are. And you're living in exile from your own heart. And the way back is to sit by the river that you've forgotten about. So what happens? He sees a cloud coming, a storm cloud coming. But he doesn't run from the storm. He stays put until the cloud overtakes him. And when he goes into the cloud, he sees living creatures. He sees angels. He sees the chariot throne of God. And ultimately he sees what? He looks up above the heavens and he sees what? He sees a throne. And he sees one sitting on the throne. Right? Who does he see sitting on the throne? Some of you got it. He tells you, one like the Son of Man. And the first thing he hears from God, the first voice he hears, Son of Man, stand up on your feet. So you know what the Jewish people intuited from that? Ezekiel did not see God on the throne. Ezekiel saw himself on the throne. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And he said, this is a vision like the glory of God. So in other words, what Paul's saying in Colossians is everybody needs to have an Ezekiel experience. It's not enough to just know Jesus is on that throne. You've got to know you're on that throne. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, see Christ exalted. In Ephesians 2, you were raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heavenly places until you can connect with the you that's on the throne. Okay, one more Jewish secret and we're done. How many of you know the story of Jacob's ladder? The story of Jacob's ladder. Okay, Jacob's running from Esau. He's, run, he's running from his twin. He's running from a reflection that looks like him, but isn't him. 
get out of the literal. He's running from his twin. John writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's running from Esau. (laughs) He finds a stone. He places his head on the stone. He falls asleep and he has a dream. And in the dream, the ladder comes down and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending. And you know what Jewish tradition says? You know why? It actually says the angels were ascending and descending. You know why the angels were ascending and descending over Jacob? You know what the Jews believe about that? Because they had seen the angels in heaven were beholding the face of God. They were seeing one on the throne. And when they saw Jacob, they saw the one that they'd been seeing on the throne. So when he wakes up, he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. But in the original language, there's two eyes there. Surely the Lord was in this place and I, I did not know. And I, myself, I did not know. I'm running from Esau. I'm running from my twin who is chasing me, threatening to kill me. But when I go to, when I shut down to all that stuff, when I go to sleep, to everything that's happened to me under heaven and I forget about Esau. Oh, an awakening happens. The angels appear. God appears. The ladder appears. And I see myself on the throne. And so I wake up and say, surely the Lord, who's always with me, continually guiding me, is in this place and... I, I did not know. Now, when Christ who is my life appears, I also appear with him in glory. And now Jacob can walk by an elevated consciousness. But here's what happened to Jacob. He woke up, fell back into time and space, and thought it was about a place called Bethel. Thought it was about a rock. Because here's what God says. When, when he's in the dream and the Lord appears to him, he says, I'll be with you everywhere you go and I'll bring you back to this place. And he wakes up and says, surely the Lord was in this place. So he said, the ladder's here, the open heaven's here, so I'm gonna, the rock is here, I'm going to build an altar, I'm going to remember this place, not knowing that he was the place. Not knowing that he was the ladder. Not knowing that he was the one. Remember, he pretended to be Esau. Right before this event, he pretended to be Esau. So the one he was pretending to be was chasing him, threatening to consume him, until he got a revelation. The Lord was in this place, and I, and I did not know myself. (laughs) See it? The one I've been pretending to be, governed by time and space, is chasing me threatening to kill me. I need to shut all of that out until I don't know any of that anymore and awaken to who I really am in Christ. Awaken to who I really am on the throne of God and begin to operate and function out of that place. And if we can do that, 
then the power that the church had, the signs and wonders that the church had, the fruit that the church had, the life that the church had will return to the church. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray that something I said this morning uh, was impacting, that seeds are sown in our hearts and lives, that we can truly awaken to the one life, the one source, the one word, the one self-reflection that is anchored in eternity, that's not tossed to and fro by the circumstances and polarities of life. Help us to set our minds on things above and get that revelation of who we are in you. And we ask for it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.